Hello everyone, welcome back to Legends of Surgery, I'm your host Tyler Rouse. Today's podcast will focus on a rare but interesting condition known as Thoracic Outlet Syndrome. We'll cover a bit of the anatomy and causes, including delving into some interesting stuff about the cervical rib. Of course, we'll trace some history behind its description and treatment and meet some famous surgeons along the way. I'll try not to compress the podcast too much as we explore Thoracic Outlet Syndrome in this episode of Legends of Surgery. Let's begin by defining thoracic outlet syndrome. To do that, we'll have to cover a bit of anatomy, so apologies in advance, but we'll stick to the basics, and I'll put up a picture on Twitter for reference too. So the main structure we're talking about here is the neurovascular bundle, meaning a collection of nerves and vessels that travel together. Now specifically, the nerve trunks of the brachial plexus that run from the spine that innervate the upper limb. The brachial comes from the Latin brachium, meaning arm. Along with the nerves run the subclavian, meaning below the clavicle or collarbone, artery, and vein. And a quick side note. The name clavicle comes from the Latin clavicula, which means little key, because the bone rotates along its axis like a key turning when the shoulder moves. And here's your fun fact of the day. The clavicle is the most commonly fractured bone in the human body. So let's follow the course of that neurovascular bundle. Basically, these structures run from the base of the neck towards the axilla, which is the armpit, and proximal or upper arm through the thoracic outlet. Now, there are a few areas where the passageway narrows, but we'll just cover the most important one. This is called the interscalene triangle, which is a triangle with the apex or point superior, bordered anteriorly by the anterior scalene muscle, posteriorly by the middle scalene muscle, and inferiorly by the first rib. The scalene muscles are a group of three pairs of muscles in the lateral neck, anterior, middle, and posterior. A fun fact, the pairs are all of differing length, and the name scalene comes from the Greek scalenos, which means uneven. And a practical tip, by injecting anesthesia into the space, anesthesiologists can do what's called an interscalene block, which freezes the shoulder and upper arm for certain types of surgery. Okay, so we have nerves and blood vessels running from the neck to the arm through a narrow space. Compression of these structures can lead to neurogenic, meaning involving the nerves, or vascular, involving the blood vessels, thoracic outlet syndrome. Now, This can lead to a constellation of symptoms, including upper extremity pain, numbness, weakness, fatigability, paresthesias or tingling feeling in the arm, swelling, discoloration, and Raynaud phenomenon. Now, Let's take a minute to explain that last one. So Raynaud phenomenon, or Raynaud's disease, is when small blood vessels in the skin spasm and narrow, limiting circulation. Typically affecting fingers, like in our case, or toes, symptoms include feeling cold, numbness, and skin color changes. Now, classically, first white, then blue, then red. It's named after Maurice Renaud, a French physician who described the condition in 1862. And, little memory thing, the colors actually are the same as the French flag. Although it's very rare for the subclavian artery to be compressed, this can happen in young adults with too much arm activity, which can lead to pallor, which is paleness, pulselessness, and coolness to the touch. This can even lead to a subclavian artery aneurysm, remember sort of ballooning of the wall of the vessel, with associated thrombus, or blood clot, and distal embolization, where those clots move further down the venous system, typically getting caught in the lungs. So what can cause compression? The repetitive overhead motions and exercise performed by athletes may lead to a loss of shoulder girdle stability, 
and hypertrophy or imbalance of the anterior and middle scalene muscles or pectoralis minor muscle or both. As well, athletes may be at a higher risk given the relative amount of musculature developed in training. Certain sports tend to be associated with this, which includes baseball players, swimmers, rowers, water polo players, all you can imagine sort of overarm activities, but also volleyball players, wrestlers, weightlifters, football players, and tennis players, to name a few. Now, other causes of thoracic outlet syndrome include clavicular fracture, poor posture, polio, pregnancy, hypertrophy or enlarging of the breast or surgery on the breast, including both implants and radical mastectomies, and even extreme opening of the median sternotomy retractor. Now, remember that for future cardiothoracic surgeons that might be listening. Now, anatomically, there are some risk factors that are thought to put people at an increased likelihood of developing thoracic outlet syndrome, including cervical ribs, anomalous muscles, and fibrous bands that may constrict that triangle we mentioned earlier. Fibrous bands are actually more common than cervical ribs, but those are more interesting, so let's talk about it for a minute. So what is a cervical rib? That's an extra rib which arises from typically the seventh cervical vertebra above the so-called first rib. Quick quiz. How many ribs are there in the human body normally? The answer is 24, or 12 pairs. Now, for those of you that went to Sunday school, you may have been told that women have one more rib than men, as in the Bible. The story goes that God took a rib from Adam and to make Eve. Now, sorry, men and women have the same number of ribs. But I did read one source that made an excellent point. If Adam lost a rib, his offspring would not have less, any more than if you lost a finger, your future children would not have one less digit. The number of ribs you have is in your DNA. Now, speaking of ribs and DNA... I left a riddle at the end of the last podcast asking what woolly mammoths and thoracic outlet syndrome have in common. And the answer is cervical ribs, so let me explain. When most people think of woolly mammoths, they think of Neanderthals, or Neanderthals, but that's a different tangent, tens of thousands of years ago. But amazingly, the very last mammoths died out just 3,600 years ago on a desolate island in the Arctic Ocean north of the Bering Sea between Russia and Alaska. And to put that into human perspective, that would be 1650 before Common Era. The Egyptian pharaohs had been ruling for 1,500 years at that point. The Egyptian pyramids were 1,000 years old, and Stonehenge was somewhere between 400 and 1,500 years old. The Greek Bronze Age Minoan civilization was well underway. Think King Minos, the Labyrinth, and the Minotaur. So here's the connection. The last small isolated population of woolly mammoths on Wrangell Island in the Arctic Ocean suffered extreme birth defects due to inbreeding in their shrinking population, which included cervical ribs. Near the end of this population's existence, about a third of infants showed cervical ribs, which is ten times more than that seen in their living relatives, elephants. Now in humans, cervical ribs are present in about 0.01 to 0.5% of the general population but around 10% of patients with thoracic outlet syndrome. Most people with cervical ribs are asymptomatic, and only 7.5-9% of surgically treated cases involve cervical ribs. So let's get into the history of the cervical rib and thoracic outlet syndrome. Now, amazingly, the description of cervical ribs dates back to the Roman physician Galen. French anatomist Francois-Joseph Hanold is credited with first associating cervical ribs 
with the development of thoracic outlet syndrome from an article published in 1742. Sir Astley Cooper, the famous British surgeon and anatomist and likely subject of a future podcast, observed a subclavian artery occlusion due to a cervical rib in 1821, but it wasn't until 1861 that the first surgery was done. British surgeon Holmes Coote showed that a cervical rib excision could successfully relieve pressure on the axillary nerves and vessels in 1861, which was written up in the journal called Medical Times and Gazette, published in London, England. Amazingly, it is available on internet archives, and I read the article, which was less than one page. The surgery was done at St. Bartholomew's Hospital and written in the strangest prose. Here's a taste. Quote, For if nature indulges in the freak of adding another rib, or rather developing the pleuropophesis of the first cervical vertebra to nearly the same extent as that of the first dorsal, she would take care, one would suppose, that the other parts would so correspond just as she does with the thoracic ribs that no interference with the proper play of the nerves or vessels should occur, end quote. He describes a case in the third person, talking about Mr. Coote himself, of a 26-year-old woman who had observed a lump on the left side of her neck as long as she could remember, but never caused an inconvenience until four months prior when she developed pain extending down the arm and into the fingers. Coote noted that when she was admitted, the radial, ulnar, and brachial arterial pulses could not be felt, and that the arm was much colder and more numb than the other. He operated on her on March 30th, and her symptoms resolved. Now, not long after Coote's surgery, two physicians separately described a complication of thoracic outlet syndrome. Paget in 1875 in London and von Schroeder in 1884 in Vienna both described the syndrome of thrombosis or blood clot formation of the axillary subclavian vein, now known as the Paget-Schroeder syndrome. Sir James Paget was an English surgeon and pathologist considered one of the founders of modern pathology. Paget's disease, and there's actually a few types, are named after him as well. Leopold von Schroeder was an Austrian internist and laryngologist. So let's talk a little bit about their syndrome. This is often seen in younger men, either due to athletics or hard labor, and is due to chronic injury and compression of the subclavian vein between the clavicle and first rib and nearby subclavius tendon. Something called effort thrombosis develops, meaning a blood clot forms in the vein. Now, simple anticoagulation is inadequate, and treatment involves breaking up the clot and treating the thoracic outlet syndrome. Now, the next bit of history involves a name that some of you may be familiar with if you work in an OR, Alfred Washington Adson. He was an American neurosurgeon that worked primarily in the Mayo Clinic. The Adson's forceps are named after him, but so is the Adson test for the diagnosis of thoracic outlet syndrome. So it works like this. So imagine the patient in a seated position, and the, so the radial pulse is palpated. The patient is instructed to rotate his or her head and elevate the chin to the tested side and take a deep breath. If there is a decrease or absence of pulse, the test is positive, showing that the vascular component of the neurovascular bundle is compressed between the clavicle and the first rib. He described this in a paper in the Annals of Surgery in 1927 called Cervical Rib, a method of anterior approach for relief of symptoms by division of the scalenus anticus, which describes his experience with patients with thoracic outlet syndrome, although it wasn't called that yet, more on that in a second, and included a description of a surgical approach. Okay, so returning to the origin of the name thoracic outlet syndrome, it was suggested in 1956 by Pete and colleagues in the proceeds of the staff meetings of the Mayo Clinic. 
Their paper was called Thoracic Outlet Syndrome, Evaluation of a Therapeutic Exercise Program. The idea was to put together several syndromes under a single diagnosis, and it's the one we use now. Now, numerous surgeons would add to and refine operations for the thoracic outlet syndrome, but that is too extensive to go into detail and is beyond the scope of this podcast. And although this is a podcast on the history of surgery, I'd be remiss if I didn't at least briefly talk about the current state of the art. Now, despite all modern imaging and other diagnostic modalities, the diagnosis of thoracic outlet syndrome is almost entirely based on the history and physical exam. Other tests are just used to exclude other causes of the symptoms. Now, treatment includes both conservative methods, such as physical therapy and surgery. The main goal of the non-surgical approach is rehabilitative exercises to correct postural abnormalities of the neck and shoulder girdle and to strengthen scapular suspensory muscles. Surgery is indicated if there is acute vascular insufficiency, progressive neurologic dysfunction, or refractory pain with functional impairment that fails to improve with four months of conservative treatment. Surgical treatment involves surgical decompression of the subclavian artery or vein and reconstruction of the damaged vessel if needed, and decompression of the brachial plexus nerve by relieving tension on the scalene muscles. A number of surgical procedures have been described, but almost all involve surgical release of the anterior and middle scalene muscles, those ones that we talked about earlier that form that triangle that is the thoracic outlet, with or without first rib resection. And of course, if a cervical rib is present, it is also excised. Now, studies have shown an 80 to 90% incidence of return to sport within four to five months in competitive athletes who presented with thoracic outlet syndrome and were treated aggressively. But patient selection was very important. So now let's talk about a couple famous people that have been affected. Now, certainly baseball players are in the majority, so I won't list them all, but I'll tell you about one. In 2004, Colorado pitcher Aaron Cook was diagnosed with thoracic outlet syndrome. After surgery by vascular surgeon Dr. Robert Thompson, he recovered enough to pitch in the All-Star game. Cook kept the rib that was removed as part of the surgery, which he called his spare rib, and kept it in his locker for good luck. And it isn't just athletes. A number of musicians have also been affected, including Isaac Hansen of the band Hansen, who not only developed Uh, thoracic outlet syndrome in 2007, but this led to life-threatening pulmonary emboli, which is blood clots in the lungs. He went on to have surgery and a full recovery. So if you're interested, simply Google famous athletes and thoracic outlet syndrome and you'll find some great stories, and I'll post a few on Twitter. That wraps up another episode of Legends of Surgery. I hope you enjoyed it. Next time, we'll cover Dr. R. Adams Cowley, the surgeon considered the father of trauma medicine and creator of the concept of the golden hour. Now, this topic was suggested by a listener, so thank you for that. Please keep the suggestions coming. In the meantime, please rate the podcast on iTunes or wherever you download episodes and leave a comment there, or follow me on Twitter at Surgery Legends, like us on Facebook at Legends of Surgery, or send an email to legendsofsurgery at gmail.com. I'd love to hear from you about your thoughts on the podcast or ideas for future episodes, and as always... Thanks for listening.